Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television shows, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? That's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I have refrained from wearing a toga, but just on this occasion. And I'm what's left of Mark Bell. Welcome. <laughs> ah, very good. Uh, I hope it's not Republican life uh, getting you down much like in Rome, because that's what we're talking about today, the HBO series Rome, specifically season one. Uh, we've, we're going to skip all the background, start pretty much where season one starts and go through it all the way, so... I guess, uh, spoilers for season one of Rome, even though how many years would it be now that it's been 2000 and a little bit? Yeah, we're looking at, I think, about 15 years ago, but like the events that oh, took I meant place the events, here. Yeah. yeah, 2000 years ago. So, you know. Yeah, well, spoilers for 2000 years ago. Uh, to be honest, I maybe I said this before, but uh, I, I was very much into it and I didn't want to start researching the history <laughs> because I was like, I don't know this well enough. So some things might be surprises, you know. I think there's a detail level here that's not like it's not history book detail level, but it's still beyond what someone would have an idea of who hasn't read all these sources and things, you know. I think it's uh, it's definitely what Michael said before. It's one of the most sort of researched and written about periods of history that you could hope to find, really. So I mean, digging into the history books, maybe not the thing to do. I think the show does a really good job of setting the context if not perfectly accurate the whole time it does a good job nevertheless and i think like i was thinking about this earlier today and it's a little bit like jacob said in a previous episode that um he could really only attach to history when there was a good story and there was good characters and what's funny is even say 20 years after the events that took place around the fall of the roman republic or if they didn't consider it at the time to follow the roman republic but as we know now um they were even at that time people looked back at this generation and they were just giants of men giants of characters uh unfortunately just men where the women are largely written out of roman history um so i think because of that it's very easy to be attracted to this time period because you can learn so much about the personalities of the characters and um their little quibbles and how they were so vain and all these little details that are not available for other periods of time or other especially roman history yeah and uh i mean i i'll I'll piggyback onto that and just read my one sentence summary which sums it all up as for season one at least a returning general defeats his political rivals and ascends to turn a democracy into a burgeoning empire before being assassinated and when you read that, it's just such, uh, like, coming more from my side where I'm more, like, I have more experience in, like, uh, television and film and studying that sort of thing rather than the history books. So for me, it's like, that's such an archetype. That's such a, I don't want, I don't want to say trope exactly, but it's just such a thing. But it's all based on these events. Like, this is obviously an unprecedented and incre- incredibly dramatic piece of history that we just keep retelling in different forms whether we rename it or turn it into fantasy or whatever it's just it's it is a great story and it's uh you know Ro- rome the hbo show did a good job of uh, capturing it, it certainly did watch it yeah i mean that, yes. that that's a great point it's it's one of those things where 
if you've never heard about any of these characters, now, I mean, you must be living under a rock if you've never heard of Julius Caesar, but if you've never heard of any of these characters and you watch this show, none of the events or none of the, I guess, the story arcs or archetypal characters or anything, none of them will be surprising to you. But what what's important to point out is that this is the origin of those. These are, this is the first time yeah. that those things happened, you know, and that's what everything in Western culture is sort of based on this, you know. Yeah. Um, well, we have a lot of history to cover, so let's dive right into what's going on here. I think we're talking at first about three of the most important characters, both in the show and in this piece of history, the first triumvirate. And yeah, the gang of tree. Yeah. yeah. So who were, like, coming from my perspective, I've heard of Julius Caesar, because I'm not living under a rock, but I, maybe I haven't heard of the triumvirate. So tell me what that is. Yeah, well, if you want to go ahead there, Mark, like there's three central characters. There's Julius Caesar, and then there's uh, Gaius Pompey Magnus, and then we have a guy called Crassus, uh, famous for, even to this day, famous for being a miserly, richest, <laughs> the richest man in Rome, basically. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. There are... Um, uh, he, not in the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I thought I would probably just actually start with Crassus, since he's not actually in the show. Um we could probably get through sort of his arc a little bit quicker. Crassus is, well, some people actually think he's the richest man in history. So he he's just extraordinarily well. Well, adjusted for inflation, Mark. Yes, in, adjusted on. for adjusted for inflation. <laughs> of course, of course. That's boring, though. I don't want to <laughs> see movies made the most money. Oh, Gone with the Wind. No, did you not see Avengers and how much money that made? Come on. <laughs> well, to to illustrate how this this guy's wealth is even as a, his his fame and his because of his wealth has endured to this day. Even in Fran- France now, there's a saying: um, "Riche come crass." And it's as rich as Crassus nowadays. So you would say if somebody, your neighbor is really rich, you would say that he's as rich as Crassus. So if it survived 2,000 years later, there was a reason for it. Sorry for interrupting. No, 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 you're that's fine. a saying in Sweden as well. Sorry to cut you off as well. I just wanted to say that's a saying in Sweden too, um, Crassus. But I never connected it until I think probably this moment. Because <laughs> it's such a different name, Crassus. <laughs> well, he's also the origin point of where the word diva comes from. Because he's Marcus Crassus Dives. That's not, that's the the, the family uh, group. So the you know the whole fabulous wealth that's that's sort of based that word diva is sort of based on his family, but he's probably best known um, in fiction and in history for being the man who put down Spartacus. So if you've ever seen the famous Spartacus movie, Crassus is the Roman general who defeated Spartacus. Now Pompey Magnus, one of the other main characters we're going to talk about in a minute, claimed some of the credit for it. But really, it was Crassus who did it. He was famous also for saying, you weren't really rich until you could afford your own army. So <laughs> Crassus is a guy who had a personal army, which is something we'll, uh, we'll get to um, sort of in a moment. But just to, to fill in kind of who he is, basically, he is from a political family. He's a little bit older than Caesar. He's about, he's about 15 years older than Caesar. He's the principal money man in this kind of gang of three. And who this gang of three are is three very powerful politicians who decide that they're going to come together in an alliance to basically further each other's goals. Crassus' role in that is he's the money man, so he's largely responsible for Caesar being able to avoid his creditors, of which there were many. Um, he's, yeah. he, uh, Crassus extended loans to Caesar to fund his political career and to help him fund his army and all sorts of other things. Um Basically, what they would do is the three of them would come together and ensure that they were the dominant figures in Rome. Crassus essentially came into his um, his sort of ascendancy by 
joining up with a previous Roman dictator, a man called Sulla, who we mentioned in the previous episode. And what he basically did was, as Sulla came into Rome and sort of overthrew the political order and started about assassinating people, Crassus was very, very clever. And he essentially got involved in land speculation. So as wealthy uh, aristocrats started losing their land, Crassus started buying it up. So essentially he's this massive property baron. Um, so about as evil a guy as you can imagine in the modern in the modern sense. Um, and he, he kind of, he tried to work in the shadows. Like he preferred to kind of have, like a spider kind of to have a finger in every pie and to have his influence there. But he, he never liked to be overt with it, at least in his early years. Anyway. Certainly, certainly the case. What would end up happening is everyone would owe Crassus a favor because everyone would go to him for a loan. And I do mean everyone. On both sides of the political divide, he would have powerful military figures, judicial figures, politicians. Everyone was sort of in Crassus' pocket to some extent. The thing that he didn't have that his principal rival through his life, Pompey Magnus, who's also his ally, the thing he didn't have is he didn't have this military victory, this great military reputation that Pompey Magnus had. Um, and this was sort of a sticking point the whole time he was in power. So while Crassus was the, the man funding the, the triumvirate, he was also a deeply, deeply jealous and fairly petty man. And he often would... Very much so. He would often use his wealth and power to get the people to sort of turn against Pompey or turn against Caesar as it suited him, despite the fact that he was in reasonably open alliance with him the whole time. Um, this proved to be his undoing eventually, um, as he, he sort of forced the government to give him a military command. So in 55 BC, Crassus put together an army and had himself elected as consul, and he invaded Parthia. And Parthia is, is uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran. It didn't go very well. So he basically marched an infantry army into a desert, and um, they brought out you know, cavalry archers, and they slaughtered his army. And uh, we call that the Orlando Bloom maneuver. Yes, exactly. Just Let's just charge into the, <laughs> into desert. the desert. This is fine. It's a Roman army. It's mostly no, water. no water. No water. <laughs> we don't need it. It's fine. But it's don't want to be burdened by water here. Such such was Crassus's fame for his wealth that when the Parthians now this is apocryphal, I'm sure. Uh, some of the historians say this is true. Some say it's not. When they captured him after the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BC. He was uh, executed by the Parthian leaders, and they did it by pouring molten gold down his throat to sate his appetite Ooh, for wealth. They stole that from Game of Thrones. Come on. <laughs> so I told you, yeah, all of these things much. are going to sound very familiar, right? So Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much Crassus. So it's 55, is, uh, and uh, where are we at the start of the show? Just to give some context, if people have watched... Um, Rome, the series. Do you remember where that Well, started? we're looking at it basically the the pre-Civil War days are the opening episodes. Um, you have the triumvirate beginning to fracture, which we'll go into in a moment, and Caesar is in, in Gaul. He has been in Gaul for 10 years. He's built up a massive power base. Pompey um, is basically sitting between an alliance with uh an alliance with Crassus and and Caesar and he's trying to keep the Senate happy too um, and so essentially there, everybody is settled at the beginning of it but there's so many underlying problems and the, the alliance this uh, triumvirate is only as good as its uh, weakest link so to speak so at any time it could fall apart which we'll, we'll learn about right know? well that sort of 
covers Crassus then. Uh, and Julius Caesar, we've all heard about. We're going to go in more into him. But Pompey, who is also central in the show, uh, I think we need to understand his role in this whole thing too, Michael. Yeah, so nowadays Caesar is probably more well-known as uh, than Pompey. But Pompey the Great, as he uh, was known, Pompey Magnus, he basically was the rock star general of his day. Uh, like, he dominated Roman life. That's the easiest way. Like, he dominated Roman life for a, for a decade. Uh, he was considered a god in the East by, uh, you know, there was temples made towards him. He started out life as basically a, a little bit like... Uh, a, a provincial farmer he was from a place called Picenum so the Romans would have looked down a little bit on him his uh, father was a, a sort of a fella who he had come in on the right side of of the civil war that Mark mentioned earlier with Sulla and he had supported Sulla but he actually died during that civil war and Pompey at the age of 23 so at the age of 23 he inherited all his father's wealth he was a very wealthy man he had the largest estate in Italy, famously. Um, and he basically f- uh, set up, he, he formed his own legions and he, he went off and he joined Sulla. And Sulla kind of looked at him and thought, kind of in a half-joking way, you know, who is this uh, young guy who's dressed up like Alexander the Great? <laughs> he's got a quaffed hair like Alexander. He, he's this big burly dude. Uh, who is this guy coming to aid me in the civil war? But he was delighted with him, and he actually kind of mockingly gave him Pompey the Great as a name. But in years to come, he he would prove to justify it. But essentially, he he um, he, he mo- he's most famous basically, and where he got his influence from was that he took over from a general called Lucullus. He took over the Eastern Legions, and at the time, the Eastern Legions and the Eastern uh, border of the empire or well, sorry republic at this stage um was sort of where all the generals wanted to go because it was the biggest opportunity the money for is, wealth right? and conquest yeah. there you go um so they all wanted to go there and he basically took over from a general called lucullus uh, uh who was a famous uh, uh, a favorite of the senate he uh basically went over and he took over large swaths of Syria. He uh, even went in, he took over Judea. He famously went into the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, uh, Antioch. He basically took over huge swaths of land and claimed them for Rome. He set up client states. He founded hundreds of cities, um, most of them, a lot of them named after himself. And he basically uh, came back extraordinarily rich like to put it to put it uh, to put it in context the amount of wealth he brought back was equal to the revenue of the entire empire for a full year just in one like just in one arrival but he's extraordinarily wealthy like the money he brings into the empire is incredible and in terms of his stats like he we often mention that a, a roman general would triumph now most generals were lucky to triumph once in their life he triumphed three times he was also the consul, so the lead politician in Rome, three times in his life. And he was even dictator uh, for a short period of time as well. Unlike Caesar, he did hand back the keys to the, the government. <laughs> that uh, was his mistake, you know. Which, I mean, <laughs> That was his mistake, you know. Um, but yeah, no, he was, the, he was the, the, the principal man in the years ro- leading up to the Civil War. I think it's, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely an important thing to say. He's the great man of the three. Um, Crassus is the money man. P- 
Pompey is the man with all the achievements and all the, the greatness and the love of probably the senatorial class. But Caesar is devious. He's the youngest of them. He's the most scheming of them. And he's the one who is trying to achieve something. Whereas Pompey maybe, Pompey sort of had his day. You know, I, I remember there's a line, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually in this show or if it's in another dramatization of it, but somebody mentions Pompey and uh, Caesar says, ah, Pompey's an old man. He's been 50 for 10 years, you know, <laughs> so it's sort of, <laughs> you know, he, he sort of had his day almost, you know, by the time that the show opens. Hmm. He was most famous just to kind of give his crowning achievement. He was uh, up until the Civil War anyway, was his his greatest kind of victory was over Mitridates, who we discussed briefly in the last episode, but he was like the boogeyman of Rome, you know? He was the one that mothers would tell their children about, that he was coming to get them. And there was a war that lasted about 25 years in the east, in uh, I think it was Pontus, and essentially, uh, although Pompey didn't defeat Mitridates in battle, he basically weakened him so much that eventually he got one of his... uh, his uh, servants to stab him to death you know um so pompey had this crowning glory that he ended a war in the east but the problem was then he came back to rome and how do you control a man who has suddenly become a, a a god to many in the east how can he go back to being a normal citizen and this is the exact same problem that we see with caesar how can someone who has gone from effectively being a king of mi- and, and uh, had control over millions of lives go back to being a normal a normal guy with his estate and his plough and his uh, uh, every, every day everyday life? I'm just going to live in my little villa off the uh, behind the, the street of Die there in the middle of Rome. It'll be fine with the plebs. Exactly, exactly. And this is it. How do you control these larger-than-life characters once they get home and well, with all their demands? All Lucius Varinus wanted in the show was to get home to his plow. Yeah. And you guys <laughs> yeah. just have to come and ruin everything, your Caesars and your Crassuses and whatnots. Um, so so Caesar, is. am I right in that Caesar and Pompey were co-consuls at the time? And so... Caesar would be the one who's off doing the warring while Pompey is at home guiding stuff as we start the show. At, 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 Depending the, on the year. The way the yeah. show portrays it, yes. But actually, the show starts in, in 52 BC. Um, the reason I know that is because it's at the very in the very opening episode, you see the, the Gallic leader, Vercingetorix, arrive in and surrender to, mm. le- to Caesar. Um, that's essentially the end of the Gallic War. That's the, the leader of the tribes in what's now France admitting that Caesar has beaten them all. Um, at that point, Caesar was not consul, but he was what they call a proconsul. So he had a govern uh, mm. a governorship, um, but the right. way he carried out his governorship was entirely illegal. The war in Gaul was completely illegal, but he had the protection of Pompey, who was just controlling the Senate for him, so that he wasn't being charged. So the show opens. This with, is why the gang a tree. Yeah. So the show opens with Crassus has died the year before, um, but Caesar no longer needs Crassus because in his illegal war in Gaul, he's hoarding the wealth for himself. Now, he's sending some of it back too, but he's hoarding enough of it so that he never has a debt to pay again. He never has to worry about the money he owes Crassus because Crassus is dead. And who's going to come and tell Caesar that they owe, that he owes them money anyway? He has 10 legions. No one's telling him anything, you know? <laughs> so, And do you want to go into a little bit about the, the life of Caesar or, or how... Sure. I was nearly going to say the life of the Caesars, which is a famous book, but how, his background, how did he come to being the conqueror of Gaul? So Caesar is, 
uh, one of the most compelling characters in history, you'd have to say. I mean, he is the principal figure that turned Rome from a uh, republic into an empire. He's the one who really ruined the republic. I mean, I know there is all these other characters play roles too, but if you had to pick one, it'd be him. Um, the thing to say about him is he, he's unlike the other two members of the Triumvirate in a, in a couple of different ways. Firstly, he's younger. Secondly, he's poor at this point. He's heavily, heavily indebted. And there's reasons for that, which I'll get to in a second. But thirdly, his family are far, far more uh, esteemed than the other two. Caesar's, it comes from a, a clan called the Julii. And they're one of the most ancient clans in Rome. They trace their origins back to Rome for hundreds and hundreds of years, back into the midst of time. They, in fact... Cla- descended from Venus. That's right, yeah. They, they claim they're descended from the goddess Venus, which is why in the show, I think Cato refers to Caesar as uh, um, Venus's favourite or something, something like that, or the, or, the, or the beloved of Venus or something like that. That's how the Julii were often referred to as. Um, the name Caesar itself, there's lots of different... Uh, there's lots of different um, theories as to what it means. My favourite one, though, is uh, it's a reference to long flowing hair because the Roman sense of humour was very sarcastic and Caesar was a balding man and was very vain about the fact that he was balding. And that was a family trait among the males in his family that they were balding. So, sarcastically, the Romans called them the flowing haired Julii, the Caesari. Um, mm. Anyway, <laughs> he um, he's, he's an interesting character in that his father was... Uh, a reasonably successful man. He had been a governor in one of the Asian provinces. But unlike Crassus and Pompey, Caesar was not on Sulla's side in the Civil War. And the reason he wasn't on Sulla's side was because Caesar had the misfortune of having an aunt who was married to Marius. And Marius was the was Sulla's principal enemy. So that, Basically the loser of the Civil yeah, War. Yeah, the loser of the Civil War. But further to that, Marius' main ally is a uh, a man called Kinna, and Kinna's daughter is Caesar's wife. So he's doubly in trouble, basically, when Sulla wins the civil war. Caesar's father also dies when he's 15 and leaves him as the head of the household. But at this point, Sulla has sort of won the civil war and he confiscates Caesar's inheritance. So now he's broke. When Sulla came to power, Caesar basically went on the run. So he spent a, a number of years running around the Mediterranean trying to avoid... Uh, and evade uh, his enemies and Sulla's men trying to capture him. Um, he actually was caught at one point and bribed the guy to let him go. Bribed him with somebody else's money, of course. Um, he was kidnapped by pirates at one point, <laughs> who he who he told he was going to kill, which he later did. Um, so he's an interesting character. He demanded... Am I right, Mark, that he, he, the pirates initially, they wanted to, like asked for a, a certain amount of gold for his life and he t- he was offended they asked for so little <laughs> yeah. so he said no you need to ask for double that amount i'm worth double that you know yeah have you any have you got any idea who i am like, you know he also just yeah. said to them he's like yeah well, that's fine i'm gonna come back here and i'm gonna kill you all and they all laughed at him but he did he came back and he crucified them all and he hired a bunch of men and they went back murdered all the pirates but he's uh delightful yeah he's an interesting great tv show he's, he's an interesting <laughs> character in in a lot of respects i think things that people don't realize about him is um culturally who he was in rome in the city as a young man he was part of sort of like a cool set like he was part of this almost like a celebrity group of young men in the city who were well-to-do 
he was regarded as a kind of a style icon, the way he wore his toga, the way he wore his belt, the sort of sandals he had, his facial hair, all things like that. He was enormously famous. And as was a popular thing to do with uh, his sort of group of um, contemporaries, they were populares, so they were populist politicians because that was the cool thing to do. Now that aligns... So he would have been... Go on. Just to cut him out, he would have been in the same tradition as we mentioned the last one, the Gracchi brothers, yes. Marius. Yeah. He would have been basically taking advantage of the same forces uh, that propelled them to power. Absolutely. He's a populist. He's uh, a, a, an unremittent populist. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to whip a crowd up. He's regarded as a, a reasonably good uh, orator. Not He was no uh, he was no Cicero, but he, he, could, uh, he could annoy a crowd enough to, to rally them behind him. Um, and he was famous. He was well known among the people. His ability to manipulate a crowd is really, really crucial later on. Um, I guess, uh, and a great soldier, I should, I suppose, Mark. That that was the making of him was a, the life of a soldier. Yeah, absolutely. When he he when he was essentially on the run is when he first got his uh, first sort of taste of uh, action in the legions. He joined legions in the east, um, but I think. Really, what his what one of his driving ambitions was? It wasn't even just to be the consul or just to be great. He just owed an extraordinary amount of money, and he knew the best way to 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 get over this was to take a to take a, a governorship. So after he has this alliance with Pompey and Crassus, one of the stipulations that he has, one of his uh, one of his terms of the alliance is that they would back him when he asks for a proconsulship, and he knew what region he wanted. He was very, very pointed about saying, I want Cisalpine Gaul. And that's that's a region that we now call Lombardy. So it's the the Italian side of the Alps, basically. The reason he wanted that area is because what was on the other side of the Alps was Transalpine Gaul, which is uh, France, modern-day France. That's where one of Rome's great enemies lives. The Gallic tribes, the Gauls, live there. And Caesar thought to himself, I could probably have a go at these lads here. Um... I'm a pretty good general. If I go in here and I start wiping them out, it'd be easy for me to manufacture a reason for a war. A wars make money. And Mark, it basically, so you're saying in a way he exploited kind of every Roman's fear of a Gallic invasion in a lot of ways because they, they originally, I think, was it in around 400, uh, in the, in 400 uh, BC, I think, that there was a Gallic tribe that sacked Rome. We spoke about it quickly in the last episode, I think. So every Roman had a fear that the Gauls were only uh, only a few miles away and they could come at any time. So he kind of put, decided, in a way, to stamp Rome's authority on that province. Very, very much so. So the, the concept in sort of Western culture, the fear of the barbarian, the northern barbarian, that comes from Rome's fear of the attack that you mentioned earlier. So there was a Gallic tribe under the leadership of a man called Brennus, and they actually sacked Rome. This sort of lived long in the psyche of the Romans, this fear that the unwashed savage from the north would come and you know, destroy their cities. So They believed there was even giants. I think, giants, yeah. The yeah. North, I mean, they just, yeah. here be dragons, you know, this kind of stuff. Like the maps didn't go yeah. that far, <laughs> and they, did, they just didn't know what was up there. It was bloody cold. Sweden. The weather was terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was Sweden. You know what yeah, I mean? It's just, right. it's snowing. <laughs> There's men walking around. They're six, they're six foot six, and they're half naked, and they have long blonde hair. We don't know what's going on. You know what I mean? This is kind of their this stereotypes. That's what we do, Mark. Yeah, that's what you do in Sweden, <laughs> right? You just walk around a place, you know, half yeah. naked. Great long furniture, hair. though. Great furniture. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
um, um this i i believe also it might like correct me if i'm wrong i don't really have a great grasp of it but like when you talk about Gaul and the Gaulic peoples and everything around there, it's not like they're not as unified as Rome, obviously. There'd be patches of different tribes and such that it would be in conflict. And some of the closer ones to Rome would be the ones that have sort of had more of a Roman influence. Absolutely. Maybe drinking more wine yep. and stuff like that coming in from the south. So I think this uh, would probably... I think... is. I, I don't have a clear understanding of the whole process of the war. Maybe we don't need to go into it in detail. But my understanding is that uh, Caesar just snatched at pretexts once he was there and sort of went, well, I have to help my allies, which slowly turned into, well, I have to eradicate everyone up here and steal all your lands. <laughs> No. I mean, I mean that. I mean that. Is, that is really it. That that really is it. Yeah. He basically, there, as you say, it's a patchwork of different tribes. Some of whom that are closer to Rome are Roman allies, and essentially what happens is another tribe starts migrating um, through what's now Switzerland, and they encroach on the territory of a Roman ally. And Caesar basically the uses Helvetti. This, yeah, the Helvetii, yeah. And Caesar basically uses this as an excuse to just launch this enormous invasion of Gaul, for which he has no legal basis whatsoever, but. He's outside of the Roman sort of home territory, the home territory of Italia. And as he's outside of that and he has legions, he's sort of immune from prosecution. And in any case... He's immune while he holds office. While he holds office, he's, yeah, he's immune. Almost like the President of the United States. Um, so <laughs> while he holds office, he's kind of immune to prosecution. Meanwhile, Pompey Magnus is sort of defending his actions because he knows damn well what Caesar's at. He's doing the same thing that Pompey did in the East, but Caesar's doing this in Gaul. Now... Just to give you an idea of, of what he does here, it's it considered by modern historians to be a total genocide. I mean, he, he wipes out at least a million people. Like, that, that's how many people die in this war. It's absolutely extraordinary, the, the death toll. His, I was reading 800 cities, Mark. He, he, he subjugated 800 cities and 300 tribes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's absolutely brutal. The man at the start of the show who you see surrendering is sort of the, the last hope of the Celtic the Celtic Gallic world. He's the guy that the, the tribes, the free tribes, agree to sort of fall under the leadership of. And there's a there's a very, very large battle between Caesar and this man versus Gatorix. Um and it's uh, it's at a, at a town called Elysia where there's a big siege and Caesar wins a, a really remarkable military victory. He had no right to win this battle in terms of the numbers, but Roman organization and Caesar's personal military brilliance wins the day and despite the numbers Caesar's defeated Gaul so now we're sort of at a point where he has this veteran army tens of thousands of men he's just conquered Gaul and the Senate are very afraid of him but one key thing that the show doesn't go into that uh, it really should is Caesar is his own biographer so he's writing a book about this as he's doing it which is just called the Gallic War but what he's doing with it is he's sending it in dispatches back to Rome to be read out in the streets. So your your local everyday guy who's not a well-educated man and already knows Caesar because he's a celebrity is suddenly hearing, Julius Caesar has led your army and defeated the savages in the north. Look at the wealth that Caesar has brought for you. Look at the glory that Caesar's brought for you. Not for the Senate, for you. He's done it with the local soldiers. He fought in the line himself like one of you. He's like you. Look what he's done for you. You know, it's very, very pointed. And he's he's even, like, to make himself look superhuman, he's even crossed the English Channel and into Britain. And many Romans at that time considered Britain 
that some some believed it didn't even exist. Oh. It was just this foggy land in the north, and he actually crossed over. Now, he didn't do much while he was there, but the very fact that he went there and crossed the Rhine too, that just made his uh, he, yeah, he, his appeal he, he, and his popularity enormous. He, bu- he had his men build a bridge over the Rhine, and like they managed it in about a week. You know, and if you think if you think about this, like how long does it take Dublin City Council to put a bridge over the Liffey? Nine months, you know. And this guy built a bridge over the Rhine in like five days and marched an army to it, prove a point, and just to prove just a to point, prove a point, yeah. And he walked over and walked back. Yeah. <laughs> he sailed. He sailed <laughs> Took to the bridge down. As you say, he did same similar kind of thing. He sailed to Britain, and some people think like some people at the time thought this couldn't be, this can't be done. Like, is this even a real place? And he just did it, just cause he could. And while he was there, like you say, didn't do much. Subjugated a tribe, demanded tribute, came back to France. You know, I heard it compared to our own impression uh, of the lunar landings. Yeah. You know, yeah. when people first saw people going on the moons, that what the typical Roman when he heard it's completely of alien. Caesar yeah, crossing the Britain. Yeah, if you imagine the the life of your oh, yeah. of an ordinary pleb, as you as you see in the show, you know, the life of uh, of Lucius Verinus's wife, and you tell her he's gone to this you know, mystical land in the north and he's led a Roman army into it, you know, just for the laugh, basically, you know. What a great man, you know. And after doing all this, then his term of office is ending. There's People are screaming for his resignation back in the Senate and he is, uh, how is he in his own eyes, how can he protect his gravitas? How can he demand the respect he thinks he's due because of his achievements? And go back to being a normal citizen again. Well, there's something about Caesar's character that you see. As a military leader, you see it. But also politically, you see it. Early on in his life, when he's married to the daughter of Kinna, Sulla says to him, divorce your wife and you'll live. And he just says, no. So he gambled. He's just completely gambled his entire life on the basis that he's like, I'm not going to be told to divorce my wife, even though he didn't give a shit about his wife. He was he was having an affair his whole life with another woman who was also in the show. But it, the point was, he, he's a guy he's a guy who gambles. In his military actions, in his battles, he takes these very, very uh, high-risk manoeuvres where he personally charges into, like, leads a cavalry charge, or he, you know, he spread his line kind of thing. He's, he's, a, he's a gambler, this guy. Um, his alliance with Pompey suffers because Pompey is married to Caesar's daughter but what ha- what ends up happening is she dies in childbirth and that sort of begins to break the f- uh, amicable feeling between Links. the two men so as the, the senate are baying for Caesar's blood Pompey's will to defend him starts to decline over time um, and what I did it, another thing that's contributing to it as well is Pompey had always his whole life he had had the the adoration of the masses, but the Senate had never liked him. They saw him as too powerful. And all of a sudden, he had the opportunity to be the Senate's champion against Caesar. Um, So he grabbed it with both hands, really. There's a very good line in the show, I think, that illustrates that point a lot, because it's it's leaning into the idea that Pompey is a man on the wane, Caesar's a man on the rise. And Pompey is jealous that it's Caesar's time. And uh, when the the Senate know this as well, so they, they sort of... They sort of manipulate that part of Pompey's character, and they say, well, "You know, we need you to lead again, Pompey Magnus. You know, show them that you're Pompey Magnus." And he has a line where he says something like, "I just have to stamp my feet, and legions will pop up all around the all around the empire to support me." You know, <laughs> as as if to say, "Like I'm still greater than Caesar." You know. Another line I think I I read about him was that when he was questioned what he would do if um, Caesar refused to give up power and return to the 
return to Rome to be persecuted. Um, he said, you might as well ask me what I would do if my own child raised a stick to me. So that was his opinion. He thought a little bit like, I have to put down Caesar. He's got too powerful. I could, I managed, I could manage him for a few years with Lucullus, but now that Julia, our, our familial connection is gone, what what have I got to lose anymore? Yeah, basically, that that's really it. Now, Caesar knows there's a confrontation coming. Ultimately, when you think about the, the character of these two men, Pompey could have no man greater than him, and Caesar could have no man to be his equal. So there was always going to be a confrontation. Um, the the gradual wearing away of Pompey's support is partially down to that, and then partially down to the Senate's sort of machinations in, in its in its fear of Caesar. They know Pompey's time is gone. They know it's over. He's getting old, but Caesar's still quite young at this point, and it's dangerous. It's very very dangerous. Yeah. So we have these three central figures that, besides, well, besides Crassus, not that central in the show, but in the conspiracy. Um, and so we're, we're just going to, I just wanted to ask, like, we, we have the Senate. How would we summarize what's going on there? Do we want to go into maybe Cicero, one of your favorites, well, Michael? Well, just quickly, I'd say that the Senate at this time was the, the sort of the Republican heart of the Senate was controlled by a guy called Cato. Uh, famous character, famous Stoic, and he essentially had always considered uh, anything Caesar did, or indeed Pompey in his earlier years, as unconstitutional. He believed that, uh, why are we quarreling with these people who we have no reason to, uh, why are we creating essentially an empire when we have no reason to? It, It went everything these great expansionists were doing went against all his old uh, Republican virtue, you know? Um, so he had always been baying for Caesar's blood, but at this time he had convinced enough people as well that Caesar was dangerous and had to be reined in. Uh, so at this time he was essentially trying to strip Caesar of his command in Gaul and Caesar, it, it, there was a, a log jam. Nobody would budge Caesar uh, decided to march down to the famous river called the Rubicon with his 13th legion and he as they said uh, rolled the dice you know yeah uh, there's the, the there's dire the, cast as he said in the show I thought it was I thought it was uh, very very interesting because they show this seminal moment in history where uh, just to explain what the Rubicon is is this river that's uh, just near modern day Florence and in Roman law it was illegal for a general to take an army south of the Rubicon that would be regarded as an act of war. So this is kind of the, the the sort of the the sphere of of peace. You can't you know you can't um, you can't engage in military activity south of the Rubicon. Caesar marches his, his army down there. When he when he's eventually declared an outlaw, he gambles again and he's and he thinks to himself, I can't march the full army because it will take too long. But if I bring one legion, I can get there quickly and they won't be expecting me. And hopefully I'll be able to catch the Senate before they get out of the city. Now he doesn't manage to catch it. But when he gets to the, the Rubicon, it's alleged that he, he gets to this river and he stops and he's sitting there on his horse thinking about his action and eventually, uh, you know, Mark Antony's with him and he's like, come on, let's go, let's do it, let's do it. And he says the line, alia yacta est, which means let the dice fly, which plays into his into his character as a gambler, you know? So he kind of says, this and, is and it. In, there's no turning back now. I've crossed the Rubicon. And 
and this is Kieran Hines in the HBO series. Yeah, in the show he uh, says nothing. Tracy, it's it's yeah. very very, but it's but it's a very pointed nothing. If that makes sense, as in the writers of the show are like, will we do the line? No, let's not do it. And I would be full sure that there's a version of that scene where he does say the line, you know, and they decided to go without it. Or he actually throws some dice, or maybe, maybe even threw the like dice. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there's like, I mean, at the end of the season as well, there's a very famous line that is, I believe, more Shakespeare than historical uh, writing et tu uh, and that. But uh, he doesn't say that either. Very pointedly by the showmakers. They're, they're trying I, to do their own thing, okay? Just before we get into the Civil War, I just think there's one thing, an anecdote I uh, that is Caesar is supposed to say, which will uh, have said, which will give you an idea of this man's mindset. Um years before this time he had been marching through a spanish the spanish wilderness and he came across this hovel of a village and one of his commanders said was supposed to have said to him you know what an awful place can you believe people live in such (laughs) you know such an awful pigsty of a place and he turned around to him and at this time he was poor and was only going off to really earn his stripes in the military uh and essentially he said i would rather be the first man in this shitty village than the second man in rome and i think that kind of really sums up how nothing was going to stop this man 500 years of republican tradition uh most maiorum all of that which we discussed in the last episode this none of that was important to him he saw it as old-fashioned and he, he he and he needed to streamline it and basically tear up the constitution it's an interesting thing yeah because biographers of him um sort of sort of differ but there, there there seems to have been some event or some period in his life where it just broke him he just he went from being a reasonably happy-go-lucky youth who had a lot of money and a lot of fame and wealth and was having affairs left, right, and center. He was very, very, very bad with with uh, with his affairs. I mean, he he had three wives and he cheated on all of them the whole time, all of the time. As mo- as most Romans supposedly, did, su- supposedly had an affair with one of Pompey's uh, previous wives Indeed, before yeah. he married, and with Crassus, and, and Crassus' well. wife as well. Um, <laughs> did he also write these accounts? <laughs> <laughs> no, these were very much yeah, people- these were very much written about him. Um, mm. And you see this in the series how uh, there's graffiti on the walls of Rome of pictures of Caesar yeah. supposedly screwing this person or that person or this type of thing. You yeah, it's all very um, salacious. They, they reckon, they reckon because of some of these uh, events and 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 these affairs that it, it, they they were very helpful in him in learning about his enemies you know because he was sleeping with the wives of the powerful and he was able to work yeah out he, he knows their slaves by by first name he knows their staff he, they all know each other it's very incestuous i mean the whole thing is crying out for for a soap opera type show really i mean it's like <laughs> all the backstabbing and all well, of that yeah, kind of when, when you were describing young Julius Caesar, I mean, I know in our episode on the death of Stalin, we were talking about a TV show about young Stalin as a gangster, Robin Banks. That's pretty unbeatable, but I kind of like the idea of young, sexy Julius Caesar as well. Because <laughs> in most depictions, this episode one of Rome, that's where we come into the story, and he already, like, we already, what, is he not the fucking emperor yet? Whatever. Like, yeah. we don't know really who he is up until that point. Um but I suppose if we're walking our way back to the crossing of the Rubicon and the start of this civil war, there's a lot of it in the show. Which bits do we want to hone in on? Well, I did want to say like that 
what you you actually do see it in the show is basically probably the one of the pivotal decisions that Pompey made was to effectively abandon Rome. So Caesar only had one uh, legion marching down. Now, there's you could argue that Pompey didn't know that or that type of thing, but he ordered basically uh, uh, the whole Senate, any of the loyal senators, he ordered a mass evacuation of the city. Um, now, he, he his reasoning for this was, as the great general, he considered this a world war, and he didn't think it would be won by who controlled Rome. He believed it would be won in some far-off field or because there was a blockade on Italy or this type of thing. Um, and I think that's portrayed well in the actual series because you see them kind of all panicking and leaving on ships and, and this type of thing. But his other big mistake was he left, and you see this in the TV series as well, is he left all the money in the treasury in Rome. <laughs> yeah. Now, Caesar, yeah, it's stupid, I know, but Caesar was already incredibly rich after 10 years of basically looting Gaul, an entire country. Can you imagine? But then he also had the full treasury of the, of the Roman Republic um, at, his, at his disposal. Um, whilst Pompey had he might be able to raise raise legions and he had the support of a lot of the uh, Roman provinces abroad and the vast majority of senators and all this type of thing. Um, he still very much opened the door to Rome. He made it easy for Caesar to opening the opening part of the civil war anyway. Yeah, in the show, this is depicted as um, Pompey's trying to get the money to be sent along with him, but someone gets assassinated uh, when it's being snuck out. Uh, two people who just happen to be, like, they, they're at every historical event, guys. Uh, Lucius <laughs> Verinus and Titus Pullo. And just a, a quick note on how the show is put together. It is, like, it's a great way to for us to see the different moods in rome like basically titus polo through him we see sort of what the people in the streets think more yeah, or less or like the popularity the, the people who are affected yeah the people who are affected by yeah. julius caesar's persuasive reputation and everything that's titus polo uh who we grow to love over the show or at least <laughs> i do yeah absolutely. um and then lucius verinus is more the old school uh, cato following like this is against the rules so it's the worst thing ever like but it, it's also the best setup for a buddy cop movie which is what basically part of this show is <laughs> as well so uh it just works well on on both of those levels <laughs> i think that's actually the so sort of the brilliance of the show really is that that sort of dichotomy those two characters as you say won't be in the popularity and uh Verinus is even described as an old katoan at one point um yeah and then them versus sort of the, the aristocracy and the machinations of how what they are doing influences the lives of these other guys and their families. It's, it's really well done. And so we're at, so basically Pompey abandons Italy. His plan is he's got control of the navy and his plan is to basically cut off the food supply to Rome and true make and he believed that that would make Caesar incredibly unpopular um and that he would be overthrown by his own the, the, his own people essentially uh but where where do we end up then so we cross as pompey crosses the sea over to greece really as it? you say like pompey's power base is in the east um traditionally that's where his power base is he knows he's got allies there he knows he can raise legions there that's probably the area where he can do it the quickest it's not to say it's the only place he does it um but he knows that's what what he can do uh Armies also pop up in the West. There is um, Pompeian forces in modern-day Spain. Caesar's yeah. action is, he, he realizes that 
before he goes after Pompey, he has to sort of secure his, secure the rear, as it were. So he first goes and strikes into Spain and 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 takes out the uh, takes out the enemy there before essentially following uh, Pompey to Greece. Um, the Senate, of course, the whole time are pushing Pompey attack Caesar, attack Caesar, attack Caesar. But what should be understood and 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 what I think is mentioned in the show a couple of times is Caesar's forces are veterans. They've spent eight, nine, ten years of war in Gaul against these enormous Gallic tribes, you know, these huge monsters of men. Um, these guys are not fresh, raw recruits. But that's what Pompey's got. It's important, it's important to say, too, that just what you were saying, Mark, like, these guys, though, they would have hero-worshipped Caesar, and they would have been loyal to him, obviously, if they had crossed the Rubicon. They were more loyal to him than they were to the Roman Republic, although he would have obviously... Uh, framed what he was doing as re-establishing the republic oh, of or course whatever. Yeah. but uh, and, and so they were a lot more willing to put up with hardship than say the raw recruits um the fresh legionaries that pompey just so-called shaked his feet and they they flew out of the ground kind of thing um which was defi- decisive it's yeah. a key point i think in the first episode of the show there's a or maybe it's it could be the second or third episode but when caesar decides he's going to go south his little speech to the soldiers is very, very important because it, it, it plays into what you're saying there where he says, basically says the madmen in the Senate are saying that we are criminals. We, not me, we, you know. And he says, I'm going to go south. Are you with me, Titus Pullo? And Titus Pullo goes, yes, sir. And he goes, Titus Pullo is with me. Are you with me? And they're all like, yeah, yeah, we're with you. <laughs> but they know uh, this guy is a guy who can win. And if he wins, we win. That's not what Pompey's And he got. famously... He famously suffered the hardships of his soldiers, so he would sleep um, on the ground. Say if they were in a winter camp, he would sleep on the ground, at least in his earlier years, you know, the exact same way with a with a cloak cover, covered over him. He would eat the same rations as his men, at least in theory, anyway. At least that's what uh, they believe. All this to kind of... Yeah, um, all this a lot of similarities to Napoleon centuries later. Anyway, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> and this made him incredibly endearing to to his men. Whereas Pompey's legions, as we were saying, you know, it was more about, I suppose, it was more about the paycheck. Yeah, it's uh, very much so. They're, they're 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 they've been raised fresh. They don't know what it is they're going up against. Pompey's also got to deal with the Senate. And the Senate are in his ear, annoying him. These these old men who are outraged that they had to leave Rome, you know, they, a lot of these guys spent their entire lives in comfort, and they've had to leave Rome. Grumpy fuckers, grumpy fuckers, yeah. grumpy fuckers. telling Pompey Magnus how to run an army, like absolutely outrageous that they would tell this guy how to run an army, <laughs> considering his life and considering their lives, you know. So you imagine they're all in his ear the whole time, and uh, you know you can you can almost imagine the scene of Cato whispering in his ear, "Caesar's greater than you now," you know. You have to prove. And they were are. these senators. After a, a, we'll get, we won't go into the battles too much. But uh, Pompey does win a famous battle initially, um, uh, and it lo- does look like Caesar's finished. But in the end, Caesar does come back. But in the intervening time, the senators were so convinced that Pompey and the Senate were going to win that they were already deciding and carving up the estates of the people loyal oh, to yeah, Caesar yeah, and deciding who who would take which office, who'll be edile, who'll be, you know, proconsul here. All this when, you know, the battle wasn't even or the, the war was wasn't even over, you Yeah, know? it's very much um it's very much a, a situation of the the assumption of the aristocracy 
of victory, of of dominance, of superiority. But Caesar knows his men. He knows he knows war. He knows one battle doesn't doesn't decide a war. Um, eventually, there's a climactic showdown um, between Caesar and Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus, um, which is in Greece, forty-eight, is which is in the year forty-eight. BC, yeah. Just to put it in, yeah, um, yeah, and which might be the worst battle in HBO history because <laughs> they just cut past it. Dreadful. But I mean, I also get it because. Like, even in, say, years later in season one of Game of Thrones, when the king goes for a hunt, you expect it to be a big thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the king goes out with horses and all. Now he's just st- strolling in the woods in the show because they didn't have even have the budget for that. Yeah, it's like four and guys so four guys walking around in the woods. <laughs> this, they've, they've put so much money into making what is on the screen look spectacular. Well, I mean, it's... It, Again, for me, we can go into it in future episodes because we're talking about Rome for more episodes. Uh, but like the visual look of the show, it's just it, oh, no, it's it stunning. is it's, an enormous. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, uh, I mean, e- e- yeah. even down to the fact that they, they are wearing period accurate armor, which I know, I know, I'm oh, even the helmet's smart. I'm always banging on about <laughs> this, but you know, I mean, that's that's a lot of effort to actually do that. They've, they're wearing the chainmail, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. It's 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 really really well done. And suffice to yeah. say, with this, so you understand. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, suffice to say, the Battle of Pharsalus, I won't go into it in exhaustive detail, but Caesar shows his military brilliance in this battle, and despite being outnumbered, his veteran troops overcome Pompey's forces, and Pompey and the Senate flee. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's 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 started to turn now. It's gone, it's gone badly for Pompey and now. The, the war, although that is the decisive uh, victory, Pompey, he escapes, he escapes, to, he just to finish up on Pompey's story and this round anyway, he escapes to Egypt where he believes that he'll be welcomed and that where he'll be able to, you know, raise new legions and continue the battle and this type of thing. Uh, he's actually assassinated uh, whilst he is, while, when he arrives in, um, when he arrives in Egypt uh, by the young Pharaoh who believed that this would endear him to Caesar, you know? Um, so that was kind of just to close off on Pompey, the Battle of Pharsalus, with sort of his great defeat, and then he died the following year, I believe in 49 or something like that. BC. That's correct, yeah. And I think um, yeah. he, one thing that you'd say about Pompey at this time period is he's just, he's incredibly unfortunate. I mean, he flees to Egypt, and with good reason, and if you were him, that's probably what you would have done as well. But unfortunately for him, the political situation in Egypt is fraught. They're right on the edge of their own civil war between Ptolemy the Thirteenth, who's the pharaoh, and his sister, Cleopatra the seventh, who is the famous Cleopatra that we all uh, we all know from yeah. history, and we go into that in the second season. I think we kind of get will, a lot indeed. of background yeah, we'll of, talk regarding about Cleopatra. So, so Caesar has the war did continue a few years after that. Anyway, he eventually did defeat. He eventually did defeat the remaining resistance. Pompey's, to him. Pompey's son, was, in fact, was uh, sort of took over the Pompeian faction, and he, he still had control of fleets, and he controlled Sicily, the man called Sextus. Um, but look, he just couldn't hold out. He just couldn't hold out. Once the once Pharsalus happened, it sort of broke the back of the resistance of the Senate and, and of Pompey. So Caesar returns to Rome triumphant. He. Uh, eventually he does have a little time in egypt yeah uh, in the show i mean they go into it a bit more with um maybe we'll mention it in in more future episodes because it's like the show even though it's 
you know, uh, fairly long episodes, it's still so much history we're covering, and it does feel a little bit rushed at times in the show because it's like, well, now we're diving into another country's <laughs> whole political situation to figure that out in like one episode. And I also all of this stuff, I I just assume when I'm watching it that it's been years when it's like it feels like it's been months or yeah. whatever, but it's been years, right? So so when he trump triumphs, um, what does that actually, you know, what is what is Caesar? What is Caesar's Rome like after this? So he he essentially returns back to Rome, but un- unlike his his uh, sort of predecessors, uh, Sulla, he's sort of learned from Sulla. He's a bit, as as we'd say in Ireland, he's a bit cuter. Like he's a bit he's a bit more sly yeah. than Sulla, and he's he's not quite as uh, he's not quite as uh, concerned with how the uh, the optimate the the aristocracy how they view him he doesn't care about them because he he knows he's overthrown them and he knows he's now the greatest of them undoubtedly so instead of going and nailing a big list of prescriptions to the wall of all the men he's going to kill he embarrasses them to uh, to a greater degree by forgiving them so he basically forgives a lot of the senators who turned who went with Pompey and and he accepts their excuse. Uh, which, We're all Romans. Yeah, and they said, "Oh well, Caesar, we didn't know. We did, we did, we didn't know. The, Pompey's army told us we had to leave, so we left. I mean, you know, we didn't know you were coming to reestablish order. And isn't it great that you've done this? And please don't kill me. You know, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff goes on. So, you you should have wrote. Yeah, know? why didn't you write me a letter? You know, this kind of, this kind of carry on. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, like a lot of the Senate, they just come back, and he he lets them live. Principally, one person who maybe he in hindsight, might have killed, was uh, Brutus. Um, but it's important just to say, maybe this is an intro to some of the other characters, Michael, we, we will have to cover Cicero at some point. But just to mention Brutus, uh, Brutus' mother is a woman called Servilia. Uh, most biographers of Caesar agree that she's really the love of his life. He, he has an affair with her that lasts for 40 years. Um, it's said by some biographers that Caesar himself believed that Brutus was his son. Now, illegitimate son, but the timeline doesn't exactly match up. It would have meant Caesar was only 15 when he was conceived, but he was... He was the, he was the descendant of Venus. Well, yeah, well that... Timeline doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, they, but they do say, I mean, Caesar did know Servilia when he was that young. Um, and mm. they're, they're, they play it up really well in the show where they're obviously writing letters back and forth to each other and she's, you know, dealing with his family, this, this woman, Atia, who is nothing like the character in the show in real life she was nothing like that at all no. but we'll probably get to that when we discuss octavian um but caesar, caesar's love for Sevilla is true that's absolutely correct he was totally head over heels for her. she was totally head over heels for him and maybe one of the reasons why he was so willing to forgive brutus for so long was because he thought he was a son well, like I'm just saying, so yeah, obviously he kind of, Brutus is a great example of someone he forgived who was on P- Pompey's side. He showed clemency and he basically, and he even like, in, he gave him a great job. I, I believe it was a praetorship or something like that. Yeah. He gave him a great job in his new administration. I do think it's important to say that Caesar eventually declared himself, he, 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 he got the Senate to declare that he was a dictator. Uh, did, first did, of all, yeah. for a temporary period. Uh, basically, the dictator, like originally that's an idea of we need one man to come in and clean up the situation uh, and then he'll give back power again. We saw that with Pompey. We saw that with Sulla in the past. We saw that, you know, going back throughout. Historically, Russia, yeah. George Washington. It's very much that George Washington thing, yeah, yeah. So 
it's 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 an old Roma tradition. You saw it during the Punic Wars when they they gave this title to uh, Fabius when they couldn't beat Hannibal. You know, Julie, uh, George Washington very much. This is the this is his idea. I have ultimate power, but I'll give it up now. You know, not Caesar. But He's not giving Caesar on the see. This is it. And Caesar, on the other hand, though, like I just want to make clear that the, any pretext of elections anymore or free elections, all that was gone. I know it's the, over now. The, 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 all the jobs that were before elected by the Roman people were now predetermined by Caesar in big lists. You knew who was going to be the uh, governor of Syria for the next five years. You knew who, you know what I mean? There was no more... Uh, even semblance or f- a falsehood of, yeah. of of there being any sort of type of democracy there. Um, he d- even he did I think he did do some pretty interesting stuff as dictator too, though he brought in he, did. he, he brought he in did. a lot of uh, law reforms. One thing he did was he basically avoided uh, an enormous amount of debt. He wiped out twenty five percent of personal debt of the populace of Rome. He basically just said, "No, no, you you don't owe that money anymore." And the creditors were like, "But, but, but," and he's like, "I don't care. They don't owe it anymore." And I wonder if. Most of his life being chased by creditors, he just thought, I'm going to get my own back on them now <laughs> by just wiping out <laughs> all this debt, you know. So I just thought it was an incredible thing for him to have done. Um, but he also brought in... He also age. reformed... Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, like, reformed how uh, grain was collected. He did loads of really practical things to kind of clean up the Roman constitution. But he did it, obviously... Uh, d- just off his own back. Oh, completely brutally. Like, with, with, yeah, with no with no consultation or no uh, word from anyone else. He uh, he minted the largest amount of gold coins the empire had ever seen. He he, he minted those partially, you know, to to help the the economy, but also because they're going to have his picture on them. You know, <laughs> just kind of be, you know, this was minted under the rulers, the rulership of Caesar. But he he brought in one as well, a law I thought was interesting, which was um, a sort of a child benefit law. So if you're a Roman citizen, you got uh, tax exemptions if you had more children, because he was trying to repopulate Italy, because <laughs> the population declined from the wars, you know, which is an interesting one. And then I suppose, I, sp- I suppose the most lasting thing he did was uh, he reorganized the calendar, and he introduced the month of July, which is, uh, you know, humbly named after himself. But he's the guy who basically created the 365 days a year calendar that we use now. I mean. That's or more or less that we use now the same similar system to what we use now at least because they had been following a lunar calendar which sort of annoyed him. So the the concept of the the leap year that's that's that he's sort of the father of that idea, you know. So it's it's, it's pretty interesting, and this is all at the same time, you know. It's pretty interesting stuff. And uh, during this time, basically, he was planning Caesar's power. He was making all like he was an incredible worker. He got so much done every day, but like during all this time he was also slowly trying to organize to go east again he wanted to go off a conquering again you know um but during this intervening few years after the battle of pharsalus ended and uh and the event on the ides of march um basically people started to get more and more worried that eventually he was going to become declare himself a king yeah and as we discussed in the last episode no matter you could be anything, but a king was considered a, a bad word. In, in it's Rome. just yeah, you know, you it's the worst thing you could possibly do is claim it, claim the crown. You know, it just it just wasn't things there. like he, he like he he started to take away the respects that senators would give to each other. So he wouldn't he'd be sitting in the senate and rather than stand up when the other senators came in, he just remained seated like a king. He started to wear kind of purple. 
uh, purple tinge around yeah. his t- uh, toga, which was a, a symbol of the kings. And there was even rumors that he wa- he wished to be crowned king. And there's a story about that, that Mark Antony, as a joke, tried to put a crown on his head and he refused it when he saw the reaction of the crowd. So basically, you have this bubbling resentment. Obviously, you have half of the population who did in the, who lost the civil war who never wanted caesar uh, but also you have all these uh, your people are slowly seeing what caesar is becoming he's also apparently becoming slightly unhinged you know um and believing that he can't die and that he there's even there's some sources say that he has he believed he was becoming a god and all of these things so there's a, a slight hint of madness coming in there or megalomania yeah the cer- the certainly the mania uh, uh, starts to feed into feed into this guy one interesting sort of tidbit about caesar is it's believed that he had epilepsy and that he occasionally yeah. took fits but and uh, in the ancient world in some regions um they believe that this was the attempt of a god to speak through a human and that's why you would sort of go into a fit and react like that i mean that's what that's what the oracles in greece would do they would inhale gas and they would actually have fits <laughs> and whatever they would say in the fit yeah. they then interpreted it as the words of gods so that that sort of played into his it, that's how we make podcast listeners you know? exactly yeah we <laughs> uh, pretty <laughs> go much fits and talk <laughs> nonsense for an hour <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we're over an hour now but um <laughs> so uh i just wanted to say on on that the 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 thing of being referred to as a king and how horrible that is you really start to see how things echo throughout history because we have the exact same thing with thomas jefferson and his newspapers calling john adams yep. uh like he wants to be a king which is a very similar situation which is you know a totally uh like because they were all reading this history They're at all the classes, time and, absolutely and li- yeah. relating it to their own time and so on so it's just really interesting um so caesar is getting a lot of stuff done how long is he actually running stuff for because i mean arguably some people even if they don't like it they might go oh yeah he's dictator for now because he's wiping up the mess that he made but that he does eventually make himself dictator for life right i suppose it's the the final like obviously people had growing suspicions (laughs) as you would you know uh but i suppose the final thing was when he actually got the senate to name him uh dictator for life which was in 40 uh 44 44 yeah yeah and that was in january now three months later you know something happened so what happened to caesar three months later it's not a great spoiler mark but (laughs) well yeah at this point there is a conspiracy is starting to build up he's he's just he's too powerful he's fabulously wealthy um and the point that i keep coming back to but it can't be understated he has a love of the plebs of the the mob and as the, as the line goes in the in the movie Gladiator, Rome is the mob. You can't have this guy who can just turn the population on you at a, at a, at a, in a whim. So uh, a conspiracy starts up even among those who are close to him or those who even love him. They knew that he he was it was too much. He he'd gone too far. So a conspiracy starts up, um, and you see this well portrayed in the show, and it's it's pressed upon Caesar's uh, possible illegitimate son. Brutus, um, and the reason what's pressed upon Brutus is part of an attempt to potentially win back the public. So if it's seen that somebody is killed by a man with the name Brutus, they would they would use that to attempt to tie the murder of the dictator 
to the overthrow of the kings in ancient times. So this man Brutus yeah. is five hundred years before. Yeah, <laughs> five hundred years before, but uh, but very much alive in the culture of Rome. So they they know the yeah, story yeah. of the foundation of Rome and the the fear of the king. It's the idea to tie it in together. So they essentially convince Brutus to join them, and they think that this will give them legitimacy. So we get to the middle of March, which is referred to as the Ides. That just means the, the middle day. And uh, Caesar is walking along to the Senate as he's going to go in and, and open the day's proceedings with the, with the Senate. And his, uh, as portrayed in the show, his bodyguards are sort of um, tricked and are pulled away from him. And he enters the Senate and the group of, group of uh, cons- conspirators who refer to themselves latterly as the liberators, um, they... They murder him. They stab him. Yeah. Um, brutally, a lot of times. You know, <laughs> it's very, very, very savage. So he's uh, he's murdered um, before the Senate can go into session um, by his by his contemporaries, uh, of whom he had, at this point, no fear. You know, that just should be said. He, he thought it, he was untouchable at this point, but they managed to just walk in with blades and kill him. Um, yeah, he was wrong. He was, indeed, he was wrong. <laughs> <This> yeah. <laughs> This pretty much does bring us to the end of season one. I mean, uh, there's a lot more stuff going on in the show that is like all of the politics that we we breezed over. Like it's all really juicy stuff for a House of Cards type show where yeah. they're sort of backstabbing and getting offers from left and right and, and all of this stuff. And at the same time, like the epilepsy was used to make Atia misunderstand that her son was having a relationship with Julius Caesar. There's a lot of stuff going There's a lot on of in stuff. this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of sub- sort of subtext but, um, that we can get into in a later episode when we talk about Octavian, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, and and we've def- we've skipped over some very important characters uh, intentionally because we want to save them because they become even more important in season two of Rome, where we go into the aftermath and how Rome changes permanently after all of this. Um, I did want to mention though before we go, there's like Titus and uh, Ver- Verinus. They become like uh, they're they're like the emotional heart of the show, and and the show really needed something like this because everyone watching knows that Julius Caesar is going to die at the yeah, end, so you need sure. something to hang up your interest in. And like there's this bit in the episode where uh, like it is ridiculous that they're in all these every historical situation these two guys are just bumbling along in the background <laughs> uh but it's also great because <laughs> we get their point of view but also we get stuff like pullo in the gladiators arena yeah. fighting for his life and i wouldn't have it any other way he's sort yeah, of like I, he's sort I, of like I, the forest gump of the show isn't he like all of the historical yeah. things happen around them but he also he's very much the pov character and shows all different facets of roman life it's brilliantly well done it's very very clever yeah and the two of them, how they've sort of, like, they're enemies at this point, kind of, but uh, Varinus is in the crowd, and he jumps in, and he saves him. It's so, <laughs> I mean, it's very over the top, but I was, like, on the edge of my seat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hand over my mouth, like, Pullo can't die, Pullo can't die. <laughs> <laughs> and to give, because uh, I wanted to know this, obviously, because they're so central, I was like, what are they actually based on? So we're going to just quickly mention that they were in... Uh, Caesar's own third-person account of the Gallic Wars. They were mentioned in there. They were the only two, the um, only two now, soldiers he mentions by name, in fact. Yeah. The only two sort of rank-and-file exactly. soldiers he mentions by name. Lucius Arenas and Titus Pullo. Yeah. And I'm just pulling this from, because I think this may have been part of the inspiration, partly for the body cop thing, but maybe specifically for the gladiator thing that we see in this season, because it says in 
Julius Caesar's account that they share two centurions who share a bitter bitter rivalry and they there's a there's an attack where they try to outdo each other so Pullo charged out of the camp to attack the enemy and just he he was uh, like he was damaged so badly that Varinus had to follow him out and rescue him while also engaging the enemy <laughs> and getting him back so saving him similar to what we see in the gladiators arena and it's just such a great story and i really applaud the writers for managing to weave these two everymen into a story that from our point of view these are like and even then like these are just larger than life figures yeah. and that can easily become lifeless when you're retelling it so you need to inject you need some to of make that, sure you're injecting some of the character. plebs we need to see some plebs like ourselves yeah, exactly. and show. wait until you hear <laughs> wait until you hear what Paulo gets up to with cleopatra <laughs> that actually was in this season um <laughs> so he actually does that in this one but yeah is there more oh well, I can't wait. Uh, I actually haven't seen all of season two yet. So that's what we're going to get back to uh, in the next episode where we're talking about season two of Rome and all the major players there, specifically the ones involved in the conspiracy and beyond. Yes. And we'll give a list of great sources and books you can pick up if, uh, you know, you're in a, if your COVID restrictions have listed and you lifted and you can actually go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, uh, yeah. Do, do we want to mention any sources for this uh, or do we just put them in the episode description? Do you have any at hand, Mark? Uh, well, I would say primarily the source I would use is uh, Suetonius's 12 Caesars, of which Julius Caesar is the first of the 12. That's probably uh, a good one to, to start with. And then also Plutarch, who's the great biographer, he gives a, uh, an interesting rendition of Caesar's life and an interesting rendition of Crassus and Pompey. So, there too, I would, right. I would start and with. I, uh, for this particular podcast, I read a lot of Rubicon by um, Tom Holland, which is very accessible. And as well as that, he really tells a narrative from the point of view of the, the characters. So, you really feel like you're familiar with them yeah. by the end of the book and you know so when pompey does get his head cut off you're actually quite sad <laughs> uh, so yeah i definitely recommend that uh, pom- uh rubicon by tom holland and you can always go back to uh spqr by um mary beard mary beard there it is coming to me yeah very good and so uh as always we must mention that we very much appreciate all of the reviews coming in on apple podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts and at showswhatyouknow.com that's where you can find all of our other coverage where we discuss other movies and television shows and uh, the rest of uh, season one and two of real history but for now that's it so thanks for listening and we'll see you next time